When I was 18, I got my uh, first real job. I had done uh, some things for work that were kind of under the table, but this was my first real job when I was 18 years old. And I worked at a place called Laser Island back home in California. It was uh, a laser tag place. I wish I knew how good I had it back then. There were, there were many times I was paid to literally play laser tag. I was, UPS doesn't give me anything like that, you know what I mean? But, uh, man, I wish, I wish I knew how good I had it then. But I remember it was my first day working there. I was 18 years old. And, um, my supervisor at the time asked me to go check the men's bathroom. And um, I guess there was only one other laser tag place in town that was our competitors, and they were kind of famous for having dirty bathrooms. So our owner took it upon himself to make it a policy that every hour the bathroom was checked. So I go to the bathroom. But I have no idea what it means to check the bathroom. And, and in my mind, I'm thinking, maybe the, the toilet's flooded, someone complained, maybe the, the sink is broken. I don't know. So I go in there. Everything looks fine. Everything looks great. It's all working well. So then I come back to my supervisor. He says, Nick, you check the bathroom? I said, yeah. He's like, it looks good. So it looks good. He's like, good job, Nick. You know, that's what you want to hear on your first day. Good job. So I'm feeling good about myself. Uh, two minutes later, another coworker comes to, to my supervisor and says, you know, Phil, I think uh, we need to get someone to check the bathroom. Uh, there's, there's, just, there's just there's some things that need to be tended to. We should really check the bathroom. And Phil looks at me. He said, Nick, I thought you checked the bathroom. And I said, I did. Looks fine, you know. And it was at that moment he realized that I had no idea what he meant by check the bathroom. Um, and so he, he sends someone with me to show me what exactly, you know, to check for. Apparently, you know, to, uh, toilet paper, paper towels, stuff like that, which I had no idea. Uh, but he assumed that I knew exactly what to check. Um, and I think uh, we can do that with a Christian life at times. Uh, we throw around terms and we just assume that you know what we're talking about. When we say, you should grow, you should be growing spiritually, we think, oh, I should be. You know, it's a song that kids sing, you know, read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Uh, we throw around these terms, but I, I wonder, um, what specifically should we be growing in as Christians? Um, that is the question that Paul is going to answer for us in Philippians chapter 1, if you would turn there, please. <laughs> Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1. Uh, it's been a little while since I spoke, so we're going to, we're going to read verses 1 through 11, but our focus this morning will be 9 through 11. Uh, Philippians chapter 1 and verse 1 says, Paul and Timothy, bondservants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi with the bishops and deacons, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine, making request for you all with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, uh, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. Just as it is right for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my, as in my chains and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers with me of grace. For God is my witness, how greatly I long for you all with the affection of Jesus Christ. And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and all discernment, that you may approve the things that are excellent 
that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ, to the glory and praise of God. Uh, I think it was that terrible day, Super Bowl Sunday was the last day I spoke, a day of great disappointment for me, I imagine not so for you, uh, but that was the last time I spoke, so it's been a little while. Um, but we, we mentioned that there were three things we wanted to take from verses 1 through 8 last time. And the first thing was Paul's position. Paul's position. And what I meant by that was Paul, as he opens this letter, he refers to himself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. If you were to look at all of the letters that Paul wrote, every other letter, he always refers to himself as an apostle. Sometimes he mentions that he's also a bondservant, but he always mentions that he's an apostle. And the reason why he would do that is because a lot of times he was writing letters to churches and um, really just telling them ways that they need to improve, telling them things that they need to uh, fix doctrinally or just practically in their life. And so he would need to mention that he was an apostle for the sake of reminding them his authority that was given to him by God. But you come here to Philippians, and Paul doesn't say that at all. He just refers to himself and Timothy as a bondservant of Jesus Christ. And he did that because he knew that the Philippians loved Paul. And he knew that the Philippians knew that Paul loved him or loved them. And so he writes this letter um, and, and we talked about the relationship, the special relationship that Paul had with the Philippian church. This was um, perhaps the, the closest church as far as relationship is concerned to Paul. Uh, they loved Paul very much. Um, there's a lot of things we could say about that, but they, they, they supported him continually, which is why he's writing this letter. And so he talks about his position, a bondservant. And then we looked at uh, Paul's praise. We mentioned how Paul praises them for three different, um, I guess, time frames. Three different time frames. What I meant by that, he, he says, um, I thank God upon every remembrance of you. Uh, if you were to read that literally in the Greek, uh, the idea is every memory I have of you moves me to be thankful. And so what does he do? He praises them for the past. And then he talks about the, 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 the present time. He praises them for the present time, how they would support him presently, how they stood for the Lord and the gospel presently. And then he talked about the future and how the Lord Jesus started this work and would complete it. So there are the three different time frames there. And lastly, we looked at Paul's progression. And uh, what I meant by that was uh, he talks about how he had the Philippian church in his heart. He had the affection for them. He basically says the same affection that the Lord Jesus has for you is the same affection that I have for you. Crazy. And we just made the note that Paul is writing to Gentiles, which was very significant. Paul, being a Jew, grew up hating Gentiles, thinking very lowly of them. And yet he comes to this point where he says, I have you in my heart. So there was evidence of his progression. Today, we're going to look at his prayer. Okay, so there's the four Ps. You're welcome. Um, there's going to be three things that we're going to look at as far as this prayer is concerned. The first thing is Paul prays uh, a prayer for excelling. He prays that they would excel. And then he prays uh, for enlightenment. Not only that they would excel, but they would be enlightened specifically. And then lastly, um, that they would be effective. So excelling, enlightenment, and effective. Um, we think of the Philippian church, and they're doing well. You read through the book of Philippians, many Christians would say Philippians is probably their very favorite book of the Bible because you read it, and it just makes you feel good inside. 
I mean, it's practical, tells you how to keep going, but there's no heavy doctrinal verses you need to work through. No sin, really, that he calls them out for firmly like Galatians or some of the other books. You read through it, it's just a great book because this is a church that's going, going on strong for the Lord. They're, they're, they, they are going on strong, um, in ways that perhaps every other church that Paul's writing to is not going on strong. I mean, he doesn't have to answer any questions they have. This is just a great church. Yes, they have their issues, which we see in chapter 4. But it's a great church. They're doing well. You think of how Paul praises 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 them for the past faithfulness, their present faithfulness, and the Lord's faithfulness in the future. The question you, you really have to ask when you come to verse 9 is, how would you pray for this church? Church that's doing doing really well. They're being persecuted, but they're remaining faithful for the Lord. They, they love the gospel. They're fervent for it. They're seeing souls saved. How would you pray for this church? You might pray that they would continue doing well. Maybe you pray that the persecutions would go down. Whatever the case is. But notice what Paul prays. In verse 9, he says, In this I pray, that your love may abound. That your love may abound still more and more. Paul's prayer for them is that they wouldn't become comfortable. I think that's a, that's a problem that uh, many of us have, um, I know I have in my life, where maybe you reach this point where you've accomplished something for the Lord, maybe you've, you've reached this certain level of knowledge of God's Word, whatever, whatever the case is, and a lot of times, that's when we can become comfortable. And we take the foot off the gas, we become content with where we're at. But Paul's prayer, he's like, and this I pray, that your love would abound. The idea there is that it would overflow, that it would be in excess. I almost had an illustration where I have a pitcher and a, a cup of water. I was going to have Isaac Boucher come up, but I decided not to. Where, where you pour this, this glass of water and it would literally overflow. But notice Paul's prayer isn't just that they would abound in love. But notice what he says, still more and more. The idea is you're, you're pouring this glass of water and it's overflowing. Most of us would stop pouring. Well, no, that's the, the idea that Paul's making is that you would continue to pour even though it was overflowing. It would have made a mess. That's why I, that's why I didn't do it. Um, but, but that's the idea that he, that they would excel in their love for the Lord. That they would excel. That they wouldn't be content. That they wouldn't be comfortable with where they were at. <clears throat> Steve Price, when he was speaking through the churches of Revelation, uh, we won't turn through there, but, but that, there's that famous church of Ephesus in, in Revelation chapter 2. And, 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 and as the Lord Jesus is talking to this church, he, he praises them in very similar ways that Paul praises the Philippians. If you remember Revelation 2, the Lord says, you're going on strong, you're being persecuted, but you're going on strong. You hate the things that I hate. You're pouring your life and soul into the things that I love. You're doing well, but there's only one problem. Somewhere along the way, what does it say? You left your first love. They were continuing on. They were faithful in the things the Lord wanted them to be faithful in. They loved the things that he loved. They hated some of the things that the Lord himself hated. But he says, you left me somewhere along in the process. Your motivation changed. And Paul, as he's thinking about these Philippians in a similar way, they're going on strong, they're doing really well, and his prayer is that their love for the Lord Jesus would abound, that it would excel. Uh, we could have spent all morning, uh, really weeks, talking about this idea of not becoming comfortable in our relationship. Um, 
Yeah. Think of uh, just that idea of leaving your first love. Just think of, for some of us, maybe many of us in this room, you have that, that person in mind, that person that you fell in love with at first. Maybe it was a young love. Maybe it was an older love, whatever the case is. But you remember how fiery that love was, how, how, how it was difficult to not think about that person constantly. I remember when Maggie and I were dating, I had to discipline myself not to think about her 24 hours a day. You know, Very easy for me to do that. Um, and, but that's what the Lord, that's what the Lord tells the church of Ephesus in Revelation. You're doing all the right things, but you left me in the dust. And Paul's prayer for the Philippians is that they wouldn't do that, that they would excel in their love for the Lord Jesus. But I was, I was looking at this prayer. I felt that we should, uh, dedicate uh, a chunk of our time to what he says next. Not only is he praying that, that they would excel in their love for the Lord Jesus, but it's really interesting. If we were to make this prayer that they would abound in their love still more and more, maybe what would follow it if we were thinking of this prayer, we would say that your love would abound in kindness or in mercy or in service or gratitude, whatever the case is. That, that's, at least that's what I think. When I, when I, if I were to make this prayer for an individual, that's what I would pray. But look, notice what Paul says. And this I pray that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge. Very interesting. In knowledge. Why in knowledge? I, I really wrestled with this for a while. Why would he pray that their love would grow, but in knowledge? That's the first word that comes to Paul's mind as he's praying um, that their love for the Lord would grow. But uh, I was thinking about this, and, and I just want you to finish this sentence for me, okay? What does the world say? Love is Blind. Thank you. Oh, man, that's close. Love is blind. I um, yeah, <laughs> thought for sure everyone would get that one. Yeah, love is blind. Uh, that's that's what people say. Love is blind. Uh, you're in love with this person, this idea, this concept, whatever the case is, and um, you're, you're blinded to this person's flaws. You're blinded to your own situation. Whatever the case is, you're just blinded because all you can see is your love for this individual. And I think so many times that's what people feel in their love for the Lord Jesus. Um, it's, it's this feeling that they have inside. And Paul is praying not that their love would grow in sentimental value or sentimental attributes, but notice what he says, that it would lo- that their love would grow, that it would abound in knowledge. Above everything else, that their love would grow in knowledge. Uh, it was really interesting. Maggie and I had um, a group of guys staying at her house um, last March, or two Marches ago, so it was over a year ago, and uh, these guys came from all over, Iowa, Wisconsin, Oklahoma, all over. I don't, I don't even know who these guys were, but they were passing through and they needed a place to stay, uh, so they stayed at our house, and I remember it was a morning, I was making them breakfast, and um, while they were waiting for breakfast to be ready, they're sitting at our kitchen table, and they say, okay, well, while Nick's making breakfast, why don't we read a chapter of scripture? And um, I think it was the 25th of March, so naturally they decided to read Matthew 25. So they, they pull out the, the Bible and they're reading Matthew 25. And uh, if you read that passage, you know, it's kind of difficult. There's some difficult things in there, uh, talking about the goats and the sheep being separated. There's some parables that are difficult. So they read through it, and they're talking, and I'm just listening. They're talking for like 15 minutes. Well, what do you think? Well, I think it means that we should do this. That's always the natural thing. Uh, a lot of times we don't stop and think what, what the passage is saying. We just think, what should I do in light of this, right? And so that's what they're doing. And uh, they're kind of missing the point. 
Honestly, they're just missing the point of the whole passage. And I'm sitting there, I'm making the eggs, and I'm just trying to, you know, be patient or whatever. And they turn to me and they say, Nick, what do you think? And I thought, yes, finally. Uh, so I said, well, so I just started asking him questions about the passage. We, have you considered this? There's a lot of dispensational truth in there. And we just started to go a little deeper in the passage. And I'll never forget it. I was shocked by this. Maggie was too. They stopped and they said, oh, we really don't care to know that, basically. We don't really care to d- dig into these things because you really can't know that dispensationalism is true and all these things. Uh, I disagree. But um, we were talking about that, and I-, I was just asking them why they felt this way. Why Why is it that you don't want to go into the Word? You just want to stay at the superficial level. And they said, basically one of them said that they had watched a lot of the older men at the, their chapel that they grew up. And all they would do was argue over these dispensational truths or whatever the case is. And, and people ended up leaving the church because of it. And so because of that, they just said, we don't want really to know anything. We just want to grow in our love for the Lord. And, and that's really the idea. And these, are, it was shocked because some of them were missionary kids. I mean, these are like people you would think were like fairly mature, but that's their idea. They say, I, I just really want to grow in my love for the Lord Jesus. You think, well, that's, that's a good, desire to have, but Paul's prayer is that their love wouldn't be blind. It's that that their love would be rooted in true knowledge. If you were looking at the the New American Standard Bible, it would say that your love would grow, that your love may abound still more and more in true knowledge. Uh, this is a word, if you were to do a word study on this, this, this idea of knowledge, it's, it's, it always carries this idea of true knowledge, a spiritual truth that you come to know. And Paul's prayer is that their love would be rooted in um, knowledge. Now we need to stop and we need to ask ourselves, what is my love for the Lord grounded in? Um, as we continue on in our Christian lives and through our Christian journeys, what, are, what is our, our love grounded in? Maybe it's grounded in service. We say that's why we have the work day, people show up. We have... Um, pathways, we have all of these service opportunities, and a lot of times that's our first outlet is is service, and rightfully so, service is important, but Paul says, I want your 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 love to abound in knowledge. Now, I want to go on a little tangent here. There's one misconception about knowledge, spiritual knowledge, that I think all of us have come to believe, and we're going to take a break from Philippians. I want you to turn to the book of Acts really quickly. I uh, Book of Acts in chapter 20. I haven't spoken in a few weeks, so I feel like I am fully loaded at this moment. I hope I don't speak too strongly in a moment. But um, Acts chapter 20, in um, Acts chapter 19, you see Paul establish the church of Ephesus, and then things happen there. He stays there for a while and then leaves. And then he has this desire to, to, to go to Rome. We read that. And as he is heading to Rome, he decides that he wants to meet the the, the, the elders of Ephesus here. We all know this passage. Uh, we're only going to read a certain small portion of it. But from verses 17 through 24, you see the, the, the Ephesian elders. They meet Paul at a place called Miletus. And there Paul just starts reminding them of, of what he did with them, how he taught them everything he knew, basically, how he discipled them, was faithful. But then he turns to them in verse 25, and he starts to tell them what they need to be warned or what they need to really watch out for. Now, as you read through this, just think about how mature these men would need to be, okay? I mean, these are men that if you were to fill in, fill these shoes, I mean, you would really need to be really mature as a, as a Christian. But look at this. 
Acts chapter 20, verse 25, Paul is speaking. He says, indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will face, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify you to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. And then he warns them, therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. I mean, just think about this. He's saying, when I leave, Judaizers, these people who really don't care for Christ at all, they're going to come in. They're going to start um, teaching all of their garbage, their doctrine, and you need to be able to face them. Not only that, but people who you love are even going to rise up in the church and do the same thing. And it's your job as a shepherd of God to defend the flock. You think, man, these guys must have been mature. Surely they've been saved for decades. Surely um, they they have been they have just gone to the universities. They've gone to Emmaus. They've spent all their years going through all these programs. They are finally at this moment where they're equipped. Does anyone know how long these people had been saved? Three years. Now I intentionally didn't read verse thirty-one. You'd see it in verse thirty-one. Uh, Paul says in verse thirty-one. Um, Therefore, watch and remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone. Three years old. We could have gone to a lot of passages. He says basically the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1. They'd only been saved, I think, four years. Now, now look at Hebrews. Look at Hebrews chapter 5. I think this is the only other time I'm going to have you turn. I think. Hebrews chapter 5. This is a verse that the Lord often um, convicts me through. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. I wonder how many people we could say this to you. He could surely say it to me. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. You see, we, we have this misconception about knowledge, about the spiritual maturity. And in our mind, we think, it takes 20, 30 years until someone is fully mature. We look at the young people of the church. They get saved at a young age, and we think, by the, by the time they hit 30, whew, they will be ready. And yet, it's a misconception. The, the, the Lord, uh, Paul looks at the Ephesian elders. He looks at the Corinthian believers. Time and time again, you see this in Scripture. You should be so much further along than where you are now. Hebrews, you want to be teachers. But instead, you need someone to come again and teach you the elementary principles of the word, the first principles, the the the, the bottom, the things that the, the kids are learning downstairs. That's what you need to learn again. And you think, for three years, Paul, give them a break. You know what I mean? And yet we have come to believe that it should take decades for someone to reach spiritual maturity and knowledge. I have been saved um, more than 20 years maybe close to 25 years, and I'm not even that old. Some of you have been saved 60 years. And the question we need to ask ourselves before the Lord, 
is my knowledge of the Scriptures where it should be? Or can the Lord take Hebrews 5.12 and paste it on my life? By this time, you should be much further along. But instead, you're still struggling with the basics of the Word. Now, in our circles, we have this problem where maybe we emphasize knowledge too much. And from that, love doesn't grow. Or I told you of the example of the young men who are emphasizing love, but not knowledge. But Paul says, your love for the Lord should be grounded and should flow out of your knowledge of the Scriptures. We need to ask ourselves, are we really dedicating ourselves to the Scriptures? Or do we think Sunday's enough? Or do we think, well, I never speak. I never teach Sunday school. That's really the roles of other people. I want to ask you this question. And this is something that Maggie and I talk about a lot. Um, obviously, the Lord hasn't given us kids yet. Um, but we think we just look at society and the questions people face today. And we can't imagine by the time our kids hit 12, 15 years old, where they really start to encounter these issues, it will be much worse, much worse. But we often talk. What if our kid comes to us someday and just says, you know, I really think God should have made me a woman. I mean, how would you how would you handle that situation? I mean, biblically speaking, could you walk them through Scripture? What if they say, you know, I've really been struggling with, with um, attraction to the opposite sex. How would you counsel that person? Would you be able to, I mean, to take children out of it? What if your friend were to call you tomorrow with that same question? Would you be able to counsel them with the Scriptures? And yet the Lord says, you should be so much more mature than you are now. And it's something that convicts me over and over and over again. Maybe another misconception, this is a famous one, I just don't have the time. I just, I'm just so busy. I remember uh, I was out of high school. I was maybe 18, 22, somewhere in there. And my grandpa, who played a big role in my life, he bought me this, this book written by Lewis Berry Schaefer um, called Major Bible Themes. and just talked about all the doctrines that we believe. And he said, Nick, I think it would really benefit you to start studying this stuff now. You're out of high school. You should really be able to, to grasp the reason why you believe these things. And I remember I told him, um, at the time I was working full time, I was going to school, and I just told him, you know, Pops, I just don't have the time to do that. If I only knew how much time I had back then. Um, but my grandpa, I'll never forget this, he looked at me and he said, Nicholas, that's what he calls me when I'm in trouble, uh, Nicholas, you always make time for what's important to you. And that's true of any phase in life. If sports are important to you, oh, I'll stay up late and see if my Dodgers won. They're always playing on the, in the, north, in the, on the west coast. They're always behind us, so by the time we go to bed, they're still playing. I don't mind staying up late you know, to, to see them win. Lately, they haven't been winning. Um, maybe you'll wake up early for your favorite book, TV show, whatever the case is. If it's important to you, my grandpa says, you'll make the time. And it's true regardless of what phase of life you're in. Obviously, I don't have kids. I said that already. When the Lord gives us kids, um, I imagine I'll be a lot busier, more tired. But still, even then, it's true. You make time for what's important to you. I don't have time would be a misconception. Maybe someone uh, would, could say, and this is something that I think a lot of people could genuinely, truthfully say, no one ever taught me how to study my Bible. I didn't get a chance to go to Galilee or Tepsi. 
No one ever taught me. And I think that's that in the, the assemblies especially, I think that's a very valid excuse. But still today, if it was important to you, there's so many resources out there where you could learn the scriptures. Uh, you could ask the elders, what are resources? Uh, what are tips? Whatever the case is, if it's important to you, you'll make time for it. Um, so are we, are we rooted and grounded in our knowledge for the scripture? Why would Paul pray, pray this? I think we could all think of examples of people who are not rooted and grounded in the scripture. And a lot of times when they come up with issues that they face in society and they don't know the answer, what happens? They're shaken and they leave or they struggle for years, whatever the case is. And so Paul says, I want you to abound yet more and more in your love for the Lord Jesus, but I want it to be grounded. I don't want it to be blind. So are we um, enlightened in this way? Is our love for the Lord Jesus growing in this way? But then he prays further. Not only that they would be rooted and grounded in, in, in their, their knowledge of the scriptures, their knowledge of the Lord Jesus, but he says, and all discernment. And all discernment. Uh, this is the only time in the New Testament you will see this Greek word come up, uh, discernment. I was kind of surprised by that. Um, it's the only time, and so it kind of sometimes will make it difficult if it's only used once. Uh, sometimes it really helps to see how the word is used in other places so you, that you can get a better understanding of the word. Uh, but a lot of people will define it this way, to have the capacity to perceive clearly and hence to understand the real nature of something the real nature of something. And so Paul prays that their love for the Lord would be grounded in knowledge and discernment so that they would be able to test the true quality of something, the true quality of something. Uh, but notice uh, he, he prays that their, their love would be in knowledge and discernment, but he gives the reason why he prays for discernment. In verse 10, he says, so that you may approve the things that are excellent. There are a lot of young people in the room. Um, I used to like to include myself in that group, but I don't think I can anymore. Um, but there, there are young people in this room, and you, you hear young people ask this question a lot. Maybe they want to do something, and their parents say no. Whatever the case is, have you heard this question? Maybe you've said it before. They say this, but what's wrong with it? But why? Why can't I do it? Um, notice, that's the wrong question to ask, biblically speaking. Notice Paul doesn't say, I want you to grow in knowledge and discernment so that you can disapprove of the things that aren't awesome, so that you'll know what's right and wrong. He doesn't say that. He says, I want you to grow in knowledge and discernment so that you can approve the things that are excellent, so that you can know what glorifies the Lord Jesus the most, so that you can know what the Lord loves and decide to love and dedicate yourself to that also. So the question isn't, well, what's wrong with it? The question should be, what would glorify the Lord Jesus the most? What is excellent? What is something that, that the Lord values that I can pour my life into? And Paul says, I want you to grow in your love, but your love to be rooted in knowledge and discernment so you may approve the things that are excellent. Um, so often in the Christian life, we try and figure out, like I said, what's right and what's wrong. And we try and straddle that line as close as we can. Um, as long as we're not in the wrong, we're close, but we're not quite there. We just want to try that happy medium. But Paul is saying that you should approve the things that are excellent. And you should cling to those qualities. That you should love those things. Um, 
the the interesting um, thing about this. Um, there's so many things I could say about this. Um, but to approve has this idea of to examine or to test or to judge. Some of your Bibles might even use the word judge. And, and I, I just want to, to look, to think about this idea of discerning in our present day and age. Um, the first thing I thought of, and I couldn't think of a better example, so that's what I'm going to look at. I just want to look at two major movements that are kind of taking place in our country today. The first thing you might see is, is feminism. That's a, fe- that's a movement that's been going on for, for a while. And I, before I say anything else, I really want to say, um, I really believe ladies have been undervalued probably since the dawn of time. I really do believe that. I grew up with four sisters and mom. My dad would go off to work for 48 to 60 hours at a time. So there was a times where literally I was the only dude in a house full of women. Um, and, and I really want to just say that I really feel that, that women have been undervalued. And I think that some good has come out of the feminism movement. I really do. I think a lot of times in our circle when we talk about that, um, it's always in the negative. But I think we should be able to identify positives that have come out of these movements. But the problem with a movement like feminism is they take lines that the Lord has drawn in the sand and they blur them up. In the Word of God, you see that the Lord made a man for a purpose and he made the woman for a purpose, both in the home, in society, in the workplace, whatever the case is. He made man and woman and gave them both their roles. But a movement like feminism you might say, well, yeah, but a woman can really do that and really do it better than a man. And in some cases, let me tell you, it's true. Uh, at work, I have four supervisors, three men, one woman. And let me tell you, the woman by far is, is very well, very good. Uh, so I, I want to say that the, in some cases that is true, but we need to be able, with um, the scriptures in mind, be able to discern and identify that which is good and that which is not good. Uh, the Proverbs would put it this way, how can two walk together unless they be agreed? So we need to be able, in this example, with our knowledge of the scriptures and with our discernment, be able to say, okay, I appreciate feminism because it has done this for the ladies. But they take it to this extent, and really that's further than I think the Lord would. So that's when we need to be able to draw the line. Um, maybe another movement would be like the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, Upon face value, you would think that is a movement that is fighting against racism. And, and at, at first, everyone was jumping on the wagon. They're saying, absolutely, we need to, to stop this in, in, in our society. The racism is a problem. But if, if you were to just take a moment and go to the Black Lives Matter movement page, the official page, you would realize that they're fighting for much more than just racism. Much more. A lot of things that the Lord clearly draws the line in Scripture. And so we need to be able to, to wit, look through the lens of Scripture and be able to discern these things in our society today, realizing that there are some good that comes out of these things, but being able to identify the negative in these movements as well, in our home, in our workplace, uh, wherever we are. Uh, a lot of things I could say. I hope I didn't step on anyone's toes. But um, why would this be so important? that our love for the Lord be rooted and grounded in knowledge and all discernment. Well, I'll say this. If you don't have discernment, you could come to love something that the Lord doesn't love. If you don't look at things through the eyes of Scripture, 
you could come to love things that the Lord himself doesn't love. And so Paul says, I hope that your love for the Lord grows in knowledge and all discernment. So he prays that their love would be enlightened. The last thing we see, he prays that, he prays that they would be effective, but in two different phases. Um, that they would be effective in their current standing and in their future states. But look at verse, um, chapter, I'm uh, sorry, verse 10, the second part of verse 10. He gives the, another reason why he's praying that their love would grow in knowledge and all discernment that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ, that you would be sincere. Uh, it's interesting, this word, uh, if you were to look it up, it, it just means to be held to the sunlight. So the idea is you use the sun to be able to see if something is sincere. It's interesting, this word uh, was actually used by uh, potters and by people who would put together vases for flowers and stuff. And I guess back then, I was reading on this, um, the vases were, were very thin. And so a lot of times, by the time they got to the potter, they would be cracked. And so what these potters would do, they, they would want to still sell these vases, but you can't sell something that's broken. So what they would do is they would take this hard wax that was the same color of, as the clay, and they would put it in the uh, the crack. And just looking at it, you couldn't tell that it that it was broken, really, until you held it to the sun. And so Paul is saying, I want you to, to grow in your knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve the things that are excellent, but so that you might be sincere. So that God could look at your life, that he could shine the light of the scriptures on your life and be able to see that's a genuine person. He's not broken. He, he doesn't have flaws that are just hidden by this wax. He said that is a person who is sincere. And Paul prays that they would be sincere, tested as genuine that the Lord would look at their life and say, that's a person who's following me, truly. That's a person who loves the things that I love and is living for the things I want him to live for. Could he say that about us? The next thing he says is, I, I want you to be without offense. The idea there is, is without blame or without stumbling. And you could take this two different ways and it would be perfect to apply it in both ways. The idea is that I myself haven't been caused to stumble by a sin or a worldly concept. The other idea is that I myself haven't caused someone else to stumble or to fall into sin. And, and both ways, I think, fit perfectly into what Paul is saying. He's saying, I want you to be sincere and without blame. If the Lord were to look at your life and compare you to the things in the Scripture, compare you to the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, I want you to pass the test, to be sincere Without blame. No one could take to, could even accuse you of something in your life. Without blame. What a prayer. But then he mentions this day of Christ. And he mentions it also in verse 6, talking about this work that the Lord has started that will com be completed at the day of Christ. But notice he says, I want you to be sincere and without offense until the day of Christ. What is that day Paul's referring to? It's the day where we all stand before the Lord and give an account for all the things that we've done in this life. The judgment seat of Christ. And Paul is saying, I want you to live in light of that day. I want you to be sincere and without blame today and until that day. That's his prayer for them. That they would be effective in their current standing. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive the things done in the body, whether good or bad. 
Again, in 1 Corinthians 3.13, each man's work will become evident for the day will show it because it will be revealed with fire and the fire itself will test the quality of each man's work. And Paul is saying, I want you to, 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 be, to pass the test today so that when that ultimate day comes, you'll pass the test there as well. Um, and so he prays that that would be the case today in their current standing. But then verse 11, he kind of has this idea of the future. Notice he says, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Um, this is an interesting, um, I try not to go into the Greek because I remember I still don't have great knowledge and understanding Greek, but before I did, people would bring up Greek and it would just... You know, it wouldn't really matter to me at all. But this is really important, okay? Um, being filled with the fruits of righteousness is what is, uh, has what they call a perfect passive participle. That's pretty significant. Uh, there aren't, that's probably one of the least, um, common in scripture. So whenever you see a perfect participle, you have to kind of take note of it. What it is, is it's something that took place in the past, but continues on in the future, okay? So what Paul is saying, being filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. He puts that perfect participle there because he's referring to the day they got saved and were therefore filled with the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ. But his prayer is that they would live that way in light of that. Does that make sense? In light of that, that they would continue to go on being filled with the fruits of righteousness. He's saying, I want your love to be rooted and grounded in knowledge and all discernment so that you may be able to judge uh, the things that are around you and invest yourself in the things that God loves, so that ultimately you will be filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. Um, you could, I think, a common verse that you could link to this, um, practically speaking. Uh, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we should walk in them. The idea is when you got saved, you were filled with the fruits of righteousness by the Lord Jesus Christ, but you should be able to live in light of that. And it should lead you to, 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 to dedicate yourself to serving the Lord and um, devoting yourself to good works for the Lord Jesus. Uh, and I've asked this question before in light of what Paul is saying, that day of Christ where we'll all stand before him and he's going to judge us. Are you sincere? Are you blameless? Yes, you're saved. It's not a question of salvation. It's a question of what did you do with your life? I want to ask you this. What will Christ find you doing? If it were today, tomorrow, would he find you in this state, sincere and blameless, devoting yourself to the things that God loves? Or would he say, really, you're not without blame? There's a lot of things in your life that are contrary to Scripture. Are we growing in knowledge? Are we growing in our discernment? Um, We ought to be. And the beautiful thing about Paul, this is one of the last things I'll say, Paul wasn't just concerned with getting the sinner to heaven. He wasn't just concerned with seeing people saved. What I love about Paul, that, that's typically where, where we stop. We just want to see people saved, and we, and we should. But Paul was also concerned with how that sinner would stand before the Lord one day. And he says, I don't, you're saved, praise the Lord for that. But let me tell you, I want you to thrive. I want you to excel still more and more, to overflow in your overflowing. That's what I want your love for the Lord to be like. We need to ask ourselves, is that true of my life? Am I overflowing? Am I abounding? 
Am I devoting myself to the Scripture? Am I growing in knowledge? Or could the Lord say, you know, really, by this time you should be teaching these things? Not that everyone's teachers, but you should be able to. Well, these are the questions we need to ask ourselves. That day at Laser Island, my supervisor assumed that I knew. Luckily, I got off the hook that day because I didn't know. No one had told me. But now, someone's told you. You're on the hook. Uh, So the question is, when you stand before the Lord one day, will you be blameless? Will you be sincere? Or what needs to change in your life? Our Father in heaven, we do just thank you for uh, your word. We thank you for the practicality of it. Father, we're reminded as we just think upon the love that we should have for the Lord Jesus, we're reminded of of that verse in 1 John, that we love him only because he first loved us. And uh, Father, we do just confess to you, I confess to you that my love for you is not what it ought to be. Um, It is not grounded often in knowledge and discernment, but it ought to be. And so Father, we just ask that as a church and as individuals, we would be able to stand before you one day without blame, genuine, sincere before you. Father, the Lord Jesus Christ would find us one day uh, working fervently, awaiting that glorious day where we will see, see the Lord Jesus face to face. Father, give us wisdom in knowing what needs to change in our life. Help us to have our priorities straight in pouring ourselves into the scriptures, not for the sake of accumulating knowledge, but Father, for the sake of knowing the Lord Jesus Christ and, and loving him more because of it. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.